welcome to the RPC podcast. We are going to take a little bit of a different direction for the time being. Instead of doing more in uh, you know conversational instructional type things, we're going to focus on actually just doing a Bible study together. So I've invited a, a, a guy from the Discord. I, do you want to identify yourself, I guess? We'll just go by Tom for, for now. Okay. Every now and then people are a little funny about using their real name, so I figure I can... Uh, Hold back on that, but if you're good with Tom, then we'll go with Tom. Uh, I'm obviously Red Curious. Uh, in future weeks, we'll also have with us Aquad, uh, who is one of the managers of the Discord server, as well as uh, Redirected, who is one of our mods at RPC. So the goal of the podcast, uh, of doing this Bible study series right now, is in the first three weeks, we want to essentially train uh, everybody on how to do an effective Bible study. Uh, most people really, especially when we have newcomers to the uh, Discord, one of the questions we ask everybody is, have you been formally trained in any type of Bible study? And almost everybody answers no, that nobody has actually been trained in how to study the Bible, uh, which is a shame because having good Bible study skills is essential to having a proper interpretation of the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible, but the fact that so many people who just casually read it are trying to interpret it as well is one of the reasons that we have so many vast differences of interpretation, uh, as well as uh, all kinds of splits and problems with the mainstream church being, a, you know, going so far liberal and all of that. So uh, do you have anything to weigh in on there, Tom? Well, no. when I joined the Discord, I also thought that I had been formally trained in some sense. But uh, no, I was quickly put to rights. I had not been formally trained. Uh, what I had done was I had been working through the Alan M. Stibbs study, uh, yeah, yeah, guide to studying the Bible, daily, uh, daily readings and daily writings. But no, we've gone over some of the material that we're going to discuss over the next three weeks. And I've really benefited from going over it with you uh, already and looking to refresh that as we go through um, Matthew. Right. So to get started, one of the first things that I, I like to go over with people on the Bible when I'm training people in Bible study is three main different types of Bible study that exist. Have I ever been through those with you? Um, I think you have. I know the first one is the mama bird study. That is one of them. Tell me what a mama bird study is. Well, a mama bird study is when you chew up the Bible and then you feed your babies with it. Uh, really not much chewing going on from the baby birds. Right. Yeah. And the idea is that the leader essentially does all the prep work. Nobody else in the study has to do anything. The leader comes in and just regurgitates everything that they've digested or chewed up so that everybody else can receive it easier. Right. Which that works well if you have an extremely competent leader and everybody else in the group is brand new to the faith. And, I, and really, mama bird studies have a lot of use when you're dealing with new Christians, because I would not want to put a brand new Christian in the position of uh, trying to formally uh, approach the scriptures, having no knowledge or experience about what they say. Uh, it's possible and doable with guidance and supervision. Uh, but really, mama bird studies are great for new believers because it's a way for them to get familiarized with minimal risk of them misinterpreting something. I, but at some point, quickly, you're going to want to move on into other types of studies I, where they can be more directly involved. And so do you remember what the more intermediate level thing is that I, I used to call it? I believe you called it off-the-cuff studies or life studies. Right. And I think I was being generous when I, I called them off-the-cuff studies <laughs> or life studies because the original word or phrase that was taught to me was nobody likes being saying, oh, this is our group, but they were called share your ignorance studies, is what we <laughs> called them. And, and that's when everybody would come to a Bible study and pretend to have done preparation and research. And then they come and really what they're doing is uh, at most they may have read the passage in advance and you know jotted down their favorite verse or something like that. Uh, and then they'd show up to Bible study and try to go through it as if they knew what they were talking about. And so then they re read and, and people would ask questions. And they would look at the passage and say, oh, well, this must be the answer. But nobody's actually done the research or prep work to figure out what the real answer is. <laughs> and so you have a lot of people who are kind of speaking off the cuff, trying to pretend that they know more than they do. Uh, but the real reality is that sometimes that type of a study is also necessary. When you have things that come up that you just aren't prepared for, you have to know how to be able to think on your feet using scripture. So, for example, if 
I go in planning on talking about Matthew chapter 13, and uh, Bob comes in saying, I, you know, my wife wants to divorce. I don't know what to deal with this. Sometimes you have to pivot when you're in a group like that, right? You can't just expect to always stick to the content all the time. You got to follow through with what real life says. So when you're in that situation, it's useful to be able to walk through and say, hey, let's talk about this, this divorce scenario. What, what does God say about this? What does he say are your obligations and her obligations? And should you try to reconcile? Is it okay to let her walk away or not? Is there infidelity involved, right? There's all kinds of things that you can talk about. But if you're not familiar with the scriptures first from being, you know, going through and having your own quiet times over reading this Bible, or by having somebody feed it to you through a mama bird study, then you can start to say, now we need to be able to think on our feet. And even if we have no preparation, it's good to have those discussions anyway. Right? Right. So you've prepared, say, for Matthew 13, and someone comes in, and really what you needed to have prepared for to deal with this guy's situation is Matthew 5.30, Matthew 19.9, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and now you've got to pivot really fast. Correct. You know, also, as you were saying that, it reminded me of some of the old days when I uh, would be in a seminar in university and people had <laughs> were doing really off the cuff uh, the readings that they had been given by their tutors, by their professors that week. And, uh, you know, it's okay to blag your way through university. You get the grade, you get the degree. But with the Bible, it's a little bit more significant, a little bit more consequential, whether you really understand this stuff. Right. I remember also you said something about uh, a pastor who told you that the people in his congregation didn't need to do their own Bible studies because he would get Mama Bert out on Sunday. Say it again. I think what you said was that there was a pastor who was regurgitating oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. his study. Yes, that's on right. Sundays. Had, there was a pastor at one point who had asked me to disciple him. And during one of our meetings, I, I was trying to go over Bible study and the importance of training people in the congregation how to study the Bible. And he says, well, I don't think people, in a, I don't think Christians need to know how to study the Bible. <laughs> like, what do you mean that they don't need to know how to study? He's like, yeah, I've been, I've been trained by seminary, so I know how to study the Bible for them, and I can just preach it to them on Sundays. And man, is that dangerous. And, and what he's essentially saying is mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, when in Acts, Luke writes about how the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they not right. received what was communicated to them from Paul, but they tested every word that he said against the scriptures to find out if what he said was true. And what he's essentially saying, my pastor was, is, hey, they, they don't need to be Bereans like that. Even though the Bereans were more noble, it's fine if they're Thessalonians. It, it's the lazy way, but that's okay, right? No, I think that the point of the passage there is that we should be like the Bereans, where we are engaging in the scriptures ourselves to test is what our pastor is saying true or not because if everybody and, and for him particular assuming that he had perfect theology which even he would say he didn't have perfect theology but even if he did by promoting that type of an attitude that the average christian doesn't need to know how to study the bible what does that say for all those other believers who might adopt a similar attitude when their pastor really doesn't teach good theology or is even cultish right <laughs> And so it mm -hmm. opens up a lot of room for danger. So definitely don't want to go down that road. So the, the third type of Bible study, though, which is what we're going to try to do, is a more inductive approach. And uh, an inductive approach covers four grounds. So the first one is background, which is what we'll focus on today. What do we know about the book that we're studying, about the author, about the uh, types of uh, things that are going to be talked about? Is there anything from the context of the passage? So if you're studying Matthew 13, for example, I'm just throwing out a random number, but uh, you would want to know what Matthew 12 says and 14 says, because that type of background information on the context of the passage is really going to help us figure out what it means. So the background is where we want to start. And then we'll move on to next week covering observations. And we'll do that together for that week to be able to show everybody here is how to make appropriate observations of scripture, uh, how to stretch our capacity to look for new things in the Bible that we may not have noticed before. And then uh, in week three, we'll go on to the last two sections, which are interpretation 
which is a lot of let's ask questions about the passage and, and try to figure out what it means by answering those questions. And then application, what are we going to do about what we just read? What is the what is God trying to convey about how we can live today based on what we wrote back then? So background, observation, interpretation, application. So hopping into the background section, we're going to start with uh, Matthew chapter one. And this study is going to be over the book of Matthew. I, I wanted to go through a gospel specifically because uh, one of the biggest issues that the church has is who is Jesus, right? We have a, a a problem in explaining that to the rest of the world because non-Christians have one image of Jesus, uh, but then we even have a problem within the church itself where everybody has a different characterization of who Jesus is, why he does what he does, what we're supposed to do to be like him, right? And so going through a gospel and just looking at the life of Jesus is a fantastic approach to that. So with that being said, do you have any knowledge or thoughts on who Matthew is as an author when he's writing this book? Great question. Actually, I was just doing a Bible study on Mark uh, chapter 2 today, and this is, of course, where Levi is called. Now, Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, is a Jewish tax collector, and it's often been remarked that the Gospel of Matthew is a particularly Jewish gospel. Uh, I could say something about the genealogies at this point at the very beginning, but that is what I know about the character of St. Matthew. Right. So what does it tell us that he was a tax collector? Hmm. Well, he was hated by the Jews, the other Jews. Uh, he was seen to be a ally of the Romans, since, you know, as we see in a, a later story where Jesus is tested about the coin that has Caesar's face on it, you know, they had a, a real theological and moral issue with giving up money to the Romans. Uh, and tax collectors like Levi, like Matthew, uh, were widely quite hated and seen as sinners tied in with prostitutes at parts of the gospel right so tax collectors are among the most despised people in uh, in the bible and that's or at least in jesus time do you do you know why um i thought i was getting somewhere towards that with the roman idea so they were seen as allies of the romans but is there something else perhaps yeah, do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Uh, I believe I do. And, and what was Zacchaeus known for having done while he was a tax collector? Ah, well, he was known for um, lying about what people owed or what they, they had given already. Right. And that is another big issue that people had with tax collectors is they would often misreport what was due in taxes so that way the government could get their due, but they would over-report and whatever excess they put on there, they would pocket for themselves. So tax collectors were known for being thieves. Not to say that everybody was doing this, but I have to certainly imagine that, especially when your own people are against you because you've allied with the Romans rather than them, one of the best and only ways that you can secure a lifestyle for yourself is to you know, steal from the people. And if they already hate you, from the tax collector's perspective, heck, why not take some extra money from them? Because, you know, they're making your life harder anyway. So it, it kind of put it put them at odds even more. So Matthew comes in as a tax collector, and uh, eventually he'll meet up with Jesus and start becoming one of his followers, and he writes this book. Why did he write this book? Well, I think he was writing to the Jews. He starts off with a genealogy starting from Abraham, which is to be contrasted, I think, with Luke's genealogy, which starts from Adam. Uh, he, he was trying to convince the Jewish audience that he was writing to, I think. Right. So the main thrust of Matthew's book that we'll see as we go through it is, I, I guess I should really say the main point is he wants to record an account of the life of Jesus so that nobody could forget it. He is a very, uh, almost like Luke, a, a technical person in his approach. He, he wants to know details and, and uh, things of action that happened and what Jesus did so that he can record it all. But the reason that he organizes the book the way that he does and tells the particular stories he does is because he wants to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So with that understanding in mind, 
let's hop into verse one, which says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there. Yep, go ahead. Right there, we have the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's putting him squarely in the Jewish context. David, the great king, and Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Right. So Abraham definitely being the father of the Jewish people, like you said, is significant because he's identifying Jesus himself as a Jew by being a descendant of Abraham, uh, trying to create a camaraderie. And you'll see throughout uh, you know, the scriptures that Abraham will be referred to as the father of the Jews. And so putting him as that descendant is significant. But why does he specifically mention David? I believe because David was connected with messianic tradition. How so? Uh, David was the great king of Israel. He was a, a model of what a king, a, a, a king over the Jews should be. Uh, Jesus, or rather the Messiah in Jewish thought, was going to be a king over Israel who would bring lasting and total peace to the world. Right. And so the, the Messiah is prophesied to come from David's lineage, correct? That's also true, yes. <laughs> Where it's, it's told that there will always be a king over Israel from David's line. And uh, would you say that that's still true today? Do you look at the nation of Israel today and think, oh, yeah, they, they have a king and it's from the Davidic line? Uh, you know, I haven't got a particularly well-worked-out theology of the nation of Israel today, and uh, it might be politically explosive. I'm not sure. Right. And I'm not going to say that we're going to answer all the questions on Israeli theology or the theology of Israel and Christianity today. And there's a lot of debate on the degree of that that separates entire denominations. We're not going to be able to answer every question today, and there are some things that I'm specifically going to ask just to let people know that the question is out there, even if I will decline to give a clear impression. Uh, but what I do want to communicate on that particular issue is, are you familiar with what Romans 9 says about the uh, influence of Israel and in relation, not the influence, I guess, but their status as God's people? Not off the top of my head. Uh... I've just fired up Romans 9, but could you give me the verse? Uh, I believe it's in 5 or 6, but it's been a while since I've looked at it. But my recollection is it says that it is not those who are the blood descendants of Abraham who are his children, but those who are the children of the promise of Abraham who are considered his descendants. Right. So we're talking here about the grafting in of the Gentiles onto the line of Abraham, how we have all come into the, the promise that was given to Abraham that he would have uh, uh, as his children, many nations. Right. So the idea here is that <clears throat> even though David doesn't necessarily have a, a birth child in his own line uh, that is ruling over the physical nation of Israel, the impression that I get from Romans 9 is that the spiritual children of the promise of Abraham are his descendants and God's chosen people, not necessarily the bloodline. Right, And this is similar to when Jesus is sitting talking to his mother that we'll, I think, see later in the book, uh, where his mother and brothers are at the door, and Jesus says, they're not really my family. They're not my mother and brothers. You who do the will of my father are my mother and brother and sister, etc. Right? Yeah. And so we get this idea that it's the, the spiritual relationships that God is always looking for as the familial bond or the, the, the foundation of his kingdom, which in modern day, what do we call the spiritual people of God? The church. That's right, the church. And uh, who is the head of the church? Um, the, well, Christ is the head of the church. Right, Christ is the head of the church. And uh, therefore, if the church is God's people by virtue of being the children of the faith of Abraham, then... Uh, Christ, being a descendant of David, is still the head, and, and God's promise to David is fulfilled by Jesus being through the Davidic line. And we're going to look at this genealogy now. And uh, in I, would, I would just add to that. Uh, also, we, you know, we do see this continuation of the uh, nation of Israel uh, theme in the promise of salvation. We have the new Jerusalem coming. It's, it's, modeled through the 
old covenant do? It's a model through the old way of things with Israel. Say that again. I was just referring to the New Jerusalem. This is uh, still a nation that is significant in theology for the New oh, Covenant. Right. Yes, absolutely. So let's hop in. And remember, we're still looking at the background section. So right now we're going over things that we've uh, kind of looked at in, uh, in advance, whether that could be going through a commentary or looking at other passages that we've researched, uh, or it could be something that we've uh, you know, generally found from reading books or have learned historically. So this is all what background is, right? We're kind of going through all of the tangential stuff that's outside of the passage to help us understand what we're reading and why the author may have written it this way. And uh, in some respect, it seems like Matthew, by starting with a genealogy, is kind of doing his own background section for his book, trying to tell people, hey, here's the, the, the total history leading up to uh, what I'm about to write to you about. So that way you can see not just who Jesus is, but where he came from, right? So with that being said, let's hop through and I... Uh, you know, we're going to skip Abraham because we've already mentioned the main significance of why he's being started, which is that he's identifying Jesus as a child of Abraham, therefore part of the Jewish people. So Abraham was the father of Isaac. What do we know about Isaac? Well, Isaac was a miraculous child. He was uh, given when Abraham was very old and after he had almost given up hope of ever having a child, though he knew he could faith in God's promise, which seems never to be fulfilled. Uh, and then yes, eventually God gave him the child in Isaac. Right. Was Isaac Abraham's only child? No, there was also Ishmael. Right. And what do we know about Ishmael? Um, I know he was the son of a uh, female servant that uh, he had. And I think, I think the story was that Sarah uh, gave him this female servant. Is it Hagar was the name? Yes. That's yes, correct. that's right. So he gave... Uh, they gave, or rather Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to have their son, and uh, he gave a son, but obviously this was not in line with the, the promise of God, not what the, uh, the plan of God was. Right. And who is Ishmael known to be the father of today? Uh, so I know that this is important in Muslim theology. That yep. there was seen to be a division between uh, those who were the children of Isaac and those who were the children of Ishmael. And through Ishmael's line comes Muhammad in, in Muslim theology. I don't know right. if that's what you were reaching for. Yes. So the thought is that the Muslims today consider Isaac, to, or not Isaac, Ishmael to be their forefather, whereas the Jews see Isaac as being the, uh, the promised line of Israel because God makes it clear in the Old Testament. Uh, when he's promising Abraham a son, that Ishmael wasn't it. His, the promise was that it would be through Sarah that he would have an offspring. And so Isaac is the child of the promise, which also relates with what we were talking about Romans, right? It's not just the blood of Abraham that matters, but it's the children of the promise, uh, which again, is not even just the blood of Isaac, but, of, but because of the promise and the faith that went on. So, but it's significant that he's talking, all right, not just Abraham, but now we're going through Isaac's line specifically, and you can cut off Ishmael's line that Jesus was not part of that. So now we have Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And what is Jacob known for? Um, I believe his, his many brothers, uh, possibly his Technicolor dream coat. Uh, nope. That, that is, uh, I mean, you're close. <laughs> That's his son. That's Joseph. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Uh, so you're really giving me the, uh, uh, the, the gridding of my Old Testament history, which is not my, <laughs> not my strongest point, actually. I must admit, I've got to go back over the Old Testament. It's all good. That's why we do Bible study, right? That's exactly it. We're already seeing the value of this. So the, he was the father of uh, Joseph. Right. So Jacob is known for being the father of those many brothers. Correct. Yes. And uh, the key here is that Jacob is the, the forefather of all of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And so yes, yes. his children included uh, not only Joseph, but also Gad and Asher and Levi and uh, so on. 
And yeah, you've seen the musical. I, I can tell you've seen the musical. I, I actually haven't. You know, I haven't. Musicals. I love musicals. I know you do. I don't think I've ever seen that one in its entirety. I've seen scenes from it. <laughs> but... Yeah, we'll have to watch that at some point. So Indeed. we have the seven, the seven sons, and they are in Egypt. By this point in the genealogy, we've got them in Egypt. Uh, they've, they've gone to join their, their brother, who has become a very important sons, man. Right? 12 sons, yeah, so there you go, there you go again, uh, a weakness in my, right, the 12 tribes, of course. All right. All right. So they've gone to join their brother in uh, Egypt, where he's become, he's been appointed a very high figure. Right, and so we're talking that Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau, and so Matthew's saying here, we're not talking about Esau's line, even though there is a very clear genealogy of Esau's line also, uh, but instead we're talking about the 12 tribes, who are known as the tribes of Israel, which is why uh, it, Jacob is the one who was renamed as Israel, right? The one who struggles with God after his little wrestling match. Right. So as a matter of technicality, Abraham was not an Israelite. He was the father of the Israelites or forefather. Uh, Jacob, having been renamed Israel, is really the patriarch by which Israel derives its name. And so you could be a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of Isaac without being an Israelite. But those who were descendants of Jacob are now of Israel, correct? Correct. So from there, we have of his 12 sons, Judah is specifically the line that we're going to talk about now, which is uh, down from Judah, we get to Perez. Uh, I, I just, I, I'll just read it. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, I, notably they say and his brothers because he's drawing attention to the fact that it's the, the 12 tribe heads. Uh, and right. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And we could go back and look at the story of Tamar and all them, but we're not going to get into there now. Uh, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So I think it's interesting, though, in the Old Testament does mention specific female characters, Tamar being one of them. I Rahab being yet another, and so mm -hmm. and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, that means that yep. Rahab was Boaz's Boaz's father, correct? Rahab was Boaz's father, yes. So tell me who Rahab is first. Well, Rahab is Sorry, the Rahab. Rahab is Boaz's son, not father. I don't know why I said that. So Rahab is the mother of Boaz. So Rahab and Salmon were together to birth Boaz. Yes, and Rahab was the was the woman who let the um, Hebrew spies into or the soldiers into the city, and she hung up a, a symbol to indicate that this house was protected by God, and no one harmed her house while the rest of the city was decimated. Right, and because of her faith, she is now part of the line and lineage of Jesus. Yes, she's specifically she's specifically called out in Hebrews uh, ten or eleven when they're talking about the the ones who had faith in the Old Testament. She's specifically right. mentioned. And who is the next person who's mentioned who ends up being the spouse of Boaz? Well, that's Ruth. Right, and what do we know about Ruth and her role? Okay, so the significance of Ruth, as I understand, is that she was in a particularly vulnerable position, and she went to Boaz. Uh, threw herself at his feet, I suppose, in, in a sense, and also tried to seduce him, uh, trusting that he would provide for her. Right. And we also get the idea that uh, Boaz, then, in marrying her, had to go through his brother, who would have had a previous priority, I guess. Yes. That his, he's known as a kinsman redeemer in the book, right? Yes. The idea of the kinsman, kinsman redeemer is a foreshadowing of the way that Jesus would redeem his people later on down in their lineage. That's right. It's, it's very interesting also as a side note to see how he, how he used his, uh, uh, his righteousness. This is Boaz. He knows that he had this kinsman who was a closer redeemer to Ruth. And so he for where And his, um, what she was asking for him was this uh, relic of young women coming to him and offering herself. You know, he says, no, we'll follow through the law and give you to the person who actually, by law, is your redeemer, unless he says no, in which case, yes, I will take you. Right. 
So continuing on in the passage, we have uh, that uh, Obed is the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. What can you tell me about David and why? Again, I've, we've already alluded to the significance of a king from David's line always being over the throne of Israel. But tell me a little bit more about David. Why is he so significant of a king that he gets that type of a promise? It may well have been the, the, the turning point in Israel's history, David represents, where they now have the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. They now have, they're establishing the temple. Solomon's going to finish it, the son of David. And uh, a, a particularly prosperous period in Israel's history, if I recall correctly. Now, David's always being referred to as this this monarch as, as a sort of throwback, you know, the good old days under David. Uh, David's the most faithful of kings. You know, he's someone who's not embarrassed embarrassed to dance in front of the uh, uh, the, the ark um, when he sees something when he sees he or Israel's collective sin, you know, he's very quick to repent of it. And so when you compare it, you contrast that with the later lines uh, after David, there is uh, there's a marked difference in his religious devotion to God. Right. And what is said of David's character specifically? Oh, he was a man after God's own heart. That's right. He's a man after God's own heart. And we see repeatedly that David not only obeyed God on a number of occasions, and yes, he disobeyed too, uh, but he really, in many ways, exemplified the character of God. And I think that a lot of what, by calling him a man after God's own heart, we see a foreshadowing of the purpose of Christ, who would express God's heart to the world in physical bodily form. And so and, you know, the case has been made by more than one scholar that David is another foreshadowing character to the person of Jesus. I, but I, I find it fascinating to me that what is David known for in his rise to, to power? It was said of Saul, one thing and another of David. You remember what that is? So could you repeat that? It cuts out for a moment. Yeah. What is David known for? in relation to, to Saul as David was ascending to power and what kind of uh, was the comparison people drew? Oh, gosh, now this is slipping my mind. The comparison between David and Saul. Yeah, the people used to shout out and chant, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Right? <laughs> so he was a greater king, I suppose. Not just a greater king, but he was a warrior, right? David was known not just for uh, you know, what he was doing when he was ruling, but he ruled effectively because of how great of a, a champion he was. He had his mighty men who would go out and fight at his side. And I, he expanded Israel to, to really conquer everything that God had given him. Anything that he wanted, God put it before him and said, I'll give it to you if you want it, go take it, <laughs> right? And so I find it interesting that this character who is said to be a man after God's own heart is not, you know, some softy who's just uh, mm -hmm. meager and, uh, you know, trying to do favors for people all the time, but he's really a, a champion and a warrior, somebody who is taking ground for God's kingdom. What does taking ground for God's kingdom look like today? Well, today we've swapped over from physical warfare to spiritual warfare. We swapped over from uh, populating the whole earth uh, with godly children to making spiritual children. So, I suppose now if we're being warriors for God, we're not just fighting in his armies, but we're actually uh, we're, we're modeling a life of someone like Paul and we'll, we'll undergo any sort of hardship in order that more people will hear and accept the gospel. Right. So to me, if the battle now is over souls rather than physical land or, or people's physical lives, then the way that we take ground for God's kingdom today is by, by warring for people's souls. And that is done by evangelism and making disciples. Couldn't agree more. You, you uh, I was thought you were going to say, what's that? Yeah, I, no, I thought you were going to say, uh, when, you know, when you're talking about David's manly character, it really is a, a fascinating story when he, when he slays Goliath and you can see how um, he's, he's known sort of by reputation. He's a young man. He's uh, toned from his hard work as a shepherd, and 
he, he struts in like Tamerlane. He struts in like Alexander the Greek, full of confidence. He, he doesn't even wait for the armor to come. He just gets his slingshot and takes out Goliath. This is a very, very masculine figure. Right. This man who's after God's own heart. So let's keep moving on from David. Uh, after David, it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, first off, we can tell whenever it mentions a wife, it's uh, that means that there's usually an Old Testament passage that is known to the Jews about who that woman is. Who is the wife of Uriah? I'm afraid I can't give you the answer to that one. That one's just going past my, my Old Testament memory. Her, her name was Bathsheba. Does that ring? Oh, okay. That Yeah, that rings a bell. <laughs> Uriah and Bathsheba. Yep. So Bathsheba is uh, Solomon's mom. And I find it interesting that she is mentioned specifically as Solomon's mom, but yet they don't mention her by name. The other women are mentioned by virtue of their name, right? Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, all directly mentioned by their own name as women. I, I'm, it's interesting to me that Matthew would specifically exclude uh, Bathsheba from that and instead say by the wife of Uriah. I, in a little bit, this is a, a slight on David because he wasn't supposed to be with another man's wife. Uh, instead, mm -hmm. I, he committed adultery. He knew that she was married. Uh, the presumption is that she was seducing him by being out on the rooftop and, or not necessarily on the rooftop, he was on the rooftop, but she was bathing in a way that uh, he was able to see her from the palace. And uh, they ended up sleeping together, having a kid. And uh, because of the adultery, God says, yeah, David, I'm not doing anything to you, but your kid's not gonna survive because of this. Uh, and so David goes into mourning for three days and, and pleads with God, prayer nonstop, and he's uh, you know, tearing apart his clothes and everything. And then after the three days, the baby dies and David gets up and, uh, but in order to cover things up before the baby had passed away, he didn't want anybody to find out that he had gotten yep. Bathsheba pregnant. So his strategy is that he at first tries to say, hey, let's bring Uriah back from the war in order to, I have him sleep with his wife so that he'll think the baby's his and not mine. And so huge deception there. He ends yep. up by David can't get him to do that. And so he eventually gives up and says, fine, go send Uriah to the front lines. Uh, and bear in mind, Uriah is mentioned in uh, the list of David's mighty men. He is one of David's best friends who has known him for years at this point. <laughs> and uh, so for David to sleep with one of his mighty men's wife, is that's kind of a big deal. I, so he gets Uriah killed, and uh, the whole thing is this big old scandal that results in his baby passing away, but God still ends up redeeming the relationship by allowing Solomon to be born from Bathsheba, and yet instead of giving Bathsheba the credit for this, I, Matthew sees it fit to say, eh, we're not going to call her the mother of Solomon. Instead, we'll say, by the wife of Uriah, and give oh. some degree of nobility in the connection here. And also to remind the Jews of the fact that even Jesus's line wasn't free of, of I, you know, complete taint or I twisted things, sin going on. But it's it's all interesting to me how he mentions all of that. But that is that is a very interesting point. The fact that he does introduce these uh, these colorful characters, some immoral characters. Um, now, uh, I you you didn't want to get into Perez and Zara by Tamar. Uh, but, you know, it is worth remembering that, you know, Genesis 38, 24, uh, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And so we have these ancestors of Jesus who were steeped in immorality. Even the very line that, that he's come from were through these forms of immorality, uh, the killing of Uriah, Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Matthew is not shying away from these colorful characters. Right. And he really can't because after Solomon, we really hit a line of kings that just one after the next really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and I'm not going to go into all those stories. You can read them in uh, the books of Chronicles and Kings. But just to go through the passage, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, uh, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, 
And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who Hezekiah was one of the ones who I, well, having his bad moments was somewhat of a redeeming time for Israel. Uh, but then Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And so what's the deportation to Babylon? This is the Babylonian exile, uh, a scar in the Jewish memory, to be to, to put it lightly. Um, now, I just wanted to say, since you don't want to go into all of these characters, but just, just to bring them out, like Manasseh, you know, Jeremiah 15, 4, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in <laughs> Jerusalem. And uh, Jeremiah 22, 24, and 30, uh, Jeconia, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, verse 30 thus says the lord write this man down as childless a man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of david and ruling again judah which i also thought was very interesting since he's being put in the line of jesus who is you know being seen as a, a form of david or david as a form of jesus rather <laughs> uh we have that in, in the claim that this is the messiah the the king of of israel the king of the jews uh and the head of the church Right. It's also significant to recognize, by the way, that Israel had a split at some point after Solomon. I don't remember which king exactly it happened for, uh, but there actually was a split where Judah and Israel became their own separate kingdoms and had their own kings. So if you read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that uh, it will give the lineage of the, the kings over Judah versus the kings over Israel separately. Uh, but because Jesus of Judah's line, uh, the, we're following the kings of Judah specifically, whereas Israel, at many points throughout this genealogical line, is actually its own distinct nation. And uh, some of that comes from the fact that I, the Israelites, there was a chunk of them that believed that because there always should be a king over Israel from the line of Judah, Judah refused ever to acknowledge a king who wasn't from the Davidic line, and therefore they maintained their own kingdom, whereas the rest of Israel had said, nah, we want to go this other way, and they kind of rebelled against God's promised lineage. So just wanted to throw that out there also. But yeah, so by the time we get to the deportation to Babylon, uh, Israel and Judah are kind of torn apart. They're under uh, different countries' rules. I can't remember where it had started. It, at which country first con actually it was babylon who first conquered them and then it went on to i believe the greeks at one point and i there's a whole lot of stuff and especially if you go through the book of daniel covers uh, quite a few of these because he's prophesying not only living through the exile but also prophesying about the kingdoms that would come and take over uh, babylon and the other ones that would conquer uh, but eventually we get to roman occupation i and uh, which is the time where Jesus comes. But to get there, and after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of uh, Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, the, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, uh, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Uh, and once again, we see Mary being mentioned by name, uh, confirming that as above, we have, you know, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, but still Bathsheba gets left out. Very interesting to me. I, that is interesting. But now, yeah, uh, so Mary gets mentioned as the, as the husband of Joseph. Uh, and of course, he has to... I, mention it this way why does he have to go through mary specifically so why does he why does matthew have to go through mary right why not just say jesus the son of joseph oh because he's uh as we're going to learn uh very shortly he's a uh the divine virgin birth right so he's technically not a birth son of joseph he is adopted because of the immaculate conception and therefore Jesus has to be referenced as the uh, as being through Mary's line, but by virtue of her marriage to Joseph, uh, he is part of their family and adopted by Joseph as uh, a son. Yes, and can I also say uh, that I was 
glad you didn't have me read all of these very difficult Old Testament names. And uh, <laughs> good job on reading all of those. I was going to stumble over at least Zerubbabel. See, I just did it there. Zerubbabel. Um, yeah, so we, it's very interesting that we, we don't have a physical descent. I think, unless I'm incorrect, there's no point in this where anyone else is adopted. Am I wrong about that? Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head if any of these figures have been adopted or not, other than Jesus. So Jesus, if that's the case, and Jesus is the first one to sort of break the physical line stemming back to Abraham. Although uh, uh, I think we do have a Marian lineage as well. So that was going to be one of two points I was going to conclude with. So let's read 17. Okay. And then we'll get there. So all so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, there are a few things that are debated about this passage. And mm -hmm. two in particular that I'm going to mention right now are one, which is what you asked, is that there are actually different genealogical accounts of Jesus. And what Matthew writes does not line up exactly with what Luke writes. And so the other one is this 14, 14, 14 thing that gets mentioned here. And it, those are both issues where I would say there are very good arguments in different positions as to how you can reach a conclusion on why those discrepancies exist or what these 14 generations mean. But they are things that ultimately I'm going to say for purposes of this study, we're not going to settle those theological debates right now. Uh, but for, for right now, let's open the question that you had, which is uh, about the different genealogical lines. Why do you think Luke records a different genealogy of Matthew or of Jesus than Matthew? Oh, great question. Uh, you know, I'm, I think I'd have to go and look at the genealogy of Luke again uh, to, to really come to any observations on that. I couldn't say exactly why he goes through Mary rather than uh, Joseph. Unless, I mean, one, one possibility could be that we've already got the genealogy in Matthew. Now, Matthew is known to Luke when he's writing his gospel uh, rather later. I think I, I would date Luke to being about 59 AD. And Matthew, I would say, I believe Matthew in priority. So I would put it earlier in the 50s uh, than Luke. So probably Luke had access. I think there's also texture evidence he had access to Matthew or, or Mark. And so possibly he was just doing it from the other side. He said, hey, we've got, we've got uh, Joseph's line. Here's Mary's. That's one possibility. Right. So I've heard, I, some people have said that one is a royal versus a common lineage and that there would have been, uh, that all of them are true, but there's different ways that you would cite how people were connected. So that is that if there was somebody of nobility in your family that you could be considered from their line, uh, even though they weren't technically a parent parent, I, which is a little bit of a stretch to me, but I can understand it. I, there's a, the other one, which is what you've cited and this is the more common, is that even though both of them reference that they're coming through Joseph, I believe, I, is that one is really through Mary's lineage and the other one is Joseph's lineage. And so, and there's other explanations beyond that. I'm going to let people who are listening in research for that themselves. Just know that that is a generally uh, unsettled question that is out there. There are some very good theories. I, I have my own thoughts on it as far as what I personally believe, but I'm going to decline to engage in that right now because that would take probably way too long to explain through. So instead, I'll let you guys make up your own mind on that. Uh, so the next thing, and I'm going to do the exact same thing for the 14 generation thing. Uh, there's different theories on that as to what they mean and why. Uh, a popular one is that uh, Matthew is trying to connect it to some numerical significance and uh, possibly even an Old Testament prophecy uh, about the way that God is bringing about the Messiah into the world uh, during different ages of Israel's existence and history where everything leading up to David, God is building a kingdom for himself. Everything is growing and expanding. And then we get to David all the way down where David and Solomon kind of like hit this pinnacle and they plateau a little bit. And then everything uh, through uh, uh, Jeconiah just starts to fall apart until they're in their exile in Babylon, right? And so it's, it's showing clearly different ages of Israel's history. And so 
Some people believe that Matthew was trying to demonstrate a form of significance to that. Uh, and they will even use the, the 14 generation thing as a, an explanation for the difference in genealogies between Matthew and Luke, saying that I, Matthew, in order to prove his point to the Jewish people about these uh, 14 generation spans, uh, is, uh, had maybe tried to force some genealogical changes in order to make that work, and therefore it's unreliable. Obviously, I maintain the position that scripture is reliable. I, but it's too right. to address today uh, in one meeting, especially given that we're nearing the end of our time, uh, to be able to go into all that. So that's what I've got on the background that Matthew gives us, as well as the background for our own personal discussion purposes. Is there anything else that you wanted to add on these first 17 verses of Matthew? Really, as a retrospective, I'd just like to point out how much time we've spent just going over the first, uh, really the first 16 verses, just how much you can glean from asking who the author was, what his target audience was, uh, what's the significance of choosing the particular names, the particular lineage. Uh, and we haven't even, in some places with David, a little bit with Solomon, with Manasseh and Jaconia, a few others, we've looked at the particulars of their lives, but for most of them, we've just sort of skated over them. And, you know, there's, you've often said that with a single verse, you can make 20 or 40 or even 60 observations. I'm sure if we dug into the extra textual uh, details of each of these ancestors of Jesus, we could come up with some extremely interesting observations and ask what sort of significance they would have for the gospel as we understand it. Absolutely. All right, so that's all I've got covered for today. Next week, we will start with verse 18, and we will do those observations that you're just referencing. And uh, I'm, I'm going to say that with whoever is present for that study, there's no need for prep work, because we're going to do the observations together, rather than doing them in advance and discussing them, which we'll do it that way in future weeks when we want to pick up the pace. Uh, so for right now, we're going very slow just to be able to get an idea of let's do the study work together of figuring all this out. And then after those first uh, three or so weeks when we're uh, doing the prep together, then we'll do the prep in advance. And for listeners, we'll start flying through the material at a much heavier pace. Do you want to pray to close us out? I would love to. God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to really get deep into Matthew and also to practice a, a real life skill, a really heavenly skill, the ability to study the Bible in depth and with a fuller understanding than most Christians quite regrettably have. Uh, it's a real blessing to have John lead us through that or me through that and then the others who will join us later and all those listening uh, to develop those skills. I always pray for discernment to uh, to see the hidden truths, so the, the really deep stuff, uh, the stuff you would never get from just reading through the Bible at the surface level, discernment, but also the uh, the strength then to take what we discern and then to apply it in our own lives through godly, spirit-led interpretation. I pray for the discipline to continue the using the skills that I've developed or I will develop in these coming Bible studies. And I pray that anyone listening will also take those skills, uh, use them to transform their own personal daily Bible studies. Amen. Amen.